Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Why are there a plethora of Christian churches? The core of this question is developed around the idea that in our modern world we see lots of different forms of Christianity. Catholicism, which I adhere to, as well as Lutheranism, Episcopalian, Anglican, various different churches like the Church of God or the Church of Christ or the New Hope Church. We as people today, and especially as Christian people, are very keenly aware of how many different types of Christian churches there are, which then begs the question, Why are there so many different Christian churches? Some people claim that the plethora of Christian churches that exist today is one of the greatest scandals of Christianity. Namely, Christianity at its core should be united around Jesus. We should be one. As it says in the Acts of the Apostles, the early Christian church was of one mind and heart. Why are we not like that today? So to try and address that question and to get you some more clarity around this issue, I developed this question and what I'm going to do is walk through, rather quickly, the course of Christian history looking at notable moments in which groups of people divided off or formed their own churches or even just split in general. So a lot of this is historical, but the other side of it that I want to be clear on is that there's theological reasons for a lot of these divisions. And although I come from one particular tradition and one of the largest ones in the world, I want to also recognize that I'm not trying to propose a certain one. My goal is to show in a more unbiased way the differences and differentiations that occurred and their theological reasons, and just leave it there. So where I need to start is the early church. The early church, right after Jesus, we think of as very united and that they're very one-minded and that they kind of just went for it. That could not be further from the truth in many ways. They strived for that. They wanted that. But the early church had lots of different opinions, and especially since we didn't have a law book or a specific like doctrinal statement that clarified what we believed, people struggled, and they debated, and they discussed it, and they strived to understand what exactly do we believe. And so although the Acts of the Apostles shows that there was one point in which the early Christians were united in mind and heart, if we keep reading through the exact same book, will realize that is not the case. In the Council of Jerusalem and the Acts of the Apostles, Peter and Paul are already in a divisive, if not confrontational, format. Paul believes that even the uncircumcised can be saved. Peter is saying that only the circumcised can. So they get together, they discuss it, and they make a resolution. That Jesus is meant for everyone. In this particular setting, you can see what I mean, that the early church was semi-divided. They were struggling. They wanted to understand But their dividedness or divisiveness or even changes in theology did not lead or um, force them against unity. Instead, it's helped them to solidify their points and guide them towards greater unity. So that as we progress into the next several centuries, although there is many divisions that occur and there's lots of different theologies proposed, the, the goal of all of this was unity. The first three centuries of the Christian Church were marked by incredible amounts of persecution. Under the Roman Empire, Christianity was considered illegal and punishable by death in some situations. Under the Emperor Diocletian, the Christian Church experienced its highest level of persecution. 
So how does it respond? In many ways, it kind of went into hiding. Not as much hiding as you may think. Under the Emperor Diocletian, many churches, now buildings, were raided, and the priest handed over the holy books and the holy vessels. A guy named Pelagius made a proposition that those who have handed over the holy books and those who have handed over the holy vessels are defectors from the faith, and therefore cannot be saved. And the only way that one can be saved is if you uh, become like Jesus, you do what he did, and therefore you imitate your life completely after him. Any kind of defection from that leads to condemnation. If I want to simplify that so you get a clearer picture of what Pelagius meant, he said, you can only be saved by your own merits. That I have to work towards it. I have to do it. I have to be the one to be saved. Jesus showed us the way. This was one of the first of the major heresies of the beginning of the church, or defections from the standard faith that we believe today. Pelagius was condemned in several ways for being so focused on himself that it wasn't about Jesus who saves. His ideas, his ideology was focused on the individual, and that that person needed to attain salvation on their own. Another group very similar to Pelagius was called the Gnostics. The Gnostics were a group of people who, after reading the scriptures, understanding the early church, went off into the desert to live their own life. They followed the Gospel of Mark very closely and believed that they had special spiritual insights or information that God granted just to them. Therefore, they lived this very close, very closed community in which they followed their own rules, they had their own revelations, and they agreed that they just lived this way. They were completely celibate, which led to its own problems, namely that they didn't persist, and therefore they kind of just died out, kind of like the Essenes in the Jewish tradition. Although these two particular heresies or defections from the faith really did not continue further into the Christian world, some of the next ones definitely will. So right at the cusp of the end of the persecutions, a new idea arose by a, name, a man named Arius, who was from the, land, the um, city of Alexandria in Egypt. He proposed that Jesus was not divine, but merely human, and out of his humanity, he lived it so perfectly that God exalted him and made him like the Son of God. This is because Arius wanted to defend strongly the idea of monotheism, and if Jesus was God, that makes a diatheism, or belief in two different gods, which very troubled him. How can we defect from the Old Testament belief that there is only one God? Arius was a powerful man and a very eloquent man who captivated the Christian world and convinced 60% of the Christian world to agree to his ideas. Emperor Constantine, however, saw this issue as very divisive and one of the issues that could divide, if not destroy, the Roman Empire. So out of a desire to keep the unity of the empire, as well as settle this dispute, he called the first council of the church, called the Council of Nicaea. During the Council of Nicaea, 380 bishops, actually that number is highly debated, anywhere between 280 and 380, most likely around 310, were present at this council to debate the issue. They discussed, they debated, they even got irate and angry at times as they tried to wrestle with what is the truth of Christianity. Is Jesus just human, or is he human and divine? The 
pronouncement, the final agreement was Jesus is both human and divine. 100% human, 100% divine, without any change, separation, confusion, or alteration of the two natures, humanity and divinity. This did not sit well with all Christian groups. Some, namely one, did not agree with any of this so far, and they split off very early on. This was the Assyrian Church of the East. They believed that Jesus was merely human and not divine, and that was the end of that. Some other Christian churches, however, did the same thing following the Council of Nicaea. After the Council of Nicaea, there were several churches who said, no, we will not agree with the pronouncements of Nicaea, therefore we're going to do our own thing. These included the Syriac Orthodox Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church, the Armenian Apostolic Church, the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church, the Malankara Orthodox Syrian Church, and the Eritrean Orthodox Church. So, now we have some issues. The world is starting to get divided. That didn't end. There are still six more councils of the early church, accepted by both the Greek Orthodox and the Latin Roman Church. The major one was the Council of Chalcedon in three, sorry, 480, that dealt with other issues of theology, such as the Trinity. At this point, however, there's still one dominant form of Christianity, and that is the one that persists into two major branches, Greek Orthodox and Latin Roman. These other churches were rather small and continue to be small throughout the next several centuries. But as things change and the Roman world changes, as well as the Christian world changes, that causes issues. So after the reign of Emperor Constantine and the Christian faith becomes legalized, it doesn't make things any necessarily better. For the next couple centuries, things are fairly okay, but we have some divisions happening. For a long time, there were five patriarchal churches. These five churches were the founding churches of Peter and Paul. They include Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople, and Rome. Rome was included in a special place of primacy because that was the site of the death of Peter and Paul. For this reason, all five of these churches were considered autonomous, they were equal in power, and they were used to decide on issues of faith and uh, matters of Christianity, with Rome being the deciding factor in case there's divisions or a tie vote. As things progress and we get to the Council of Chalcedon, things change a little bit. The order of prestige of these five churches alters slightly. Alexandria used to take second place, but now Constantinople has risen to that second place because the empire has moved to Constantinople and used that as its center of power for the Roman Empire. A couple other issues are starting to form too, as we realize that this division of power is leading to different forms of theology. Namely, Alexandria and Antioch have become the two primary places and schools of theology, and many different ideas are coming out of them. As we progress further along, and the emperor moves further out of Rome and spends more of his time in Turkey, Constantinople, we realize that there's an issue. Rome doesn't have a central point of government any longer. It doesn't have that ruling authority that it once had. And Rome is also being challenged by the barbarians who are rising to power and attempting to conquer it. So our first notable figure is St. Gregory the Great, Pope from 590 to 604. He is a man who was at one point a lawyer and a prestigious lawyer, he was the prelate of the, sorry, the prefect of the city of Rome, the highest official after the emperor and his advisor left. This being said, 
He rose to power, realized that he didn't want it anymore, left, became a monk. Then the Pope decided that he didn't want him to be a monk anymore, made him the seventh deacon of Rome, which is the second highest official after the Pope, which then led to his election as Pope. As Pope, he was the highest ruling authority of the city of Rome, and, without any ruling authority from the Roman Empire, became the only authority of Rome. He would help during the Great Plague, during the Flood, and he fought against the barbarians by words, not actions. This kind of mentality and this change in focus led to the Roman patriarch having far more authority than the other four, not because they agreed on it or he merited it, but just because of historical situations that led to a need of power by the Roman patriarch. This then led to new changes in the way we see the papacy and the patriarch of Rome, namely the term pope or father, the new terms of servant of the servants of God, and notable things like the pope having the authority over the Christian church. This did not sit well with the other four patriarchs, who were very distressed by this, and made it very clear of their distress. Things did not improve over the next several centuries. In the 8th century, we have an issue in Spain, in which there's an issue of theology where in the Creed of Nicaea, the statement of faith coming out of the Council of Nicaea, there was a confusion. And the confusion is around the Holy Spirit. It states that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, which implies that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit both proceed from the Father, which makes them look identical. Which then implies that there's only two persons of God, the Father and the Son, and the Spirit is just an expression, but not a real person of itself. This point of theology became contentious in the Spanish church, and so they debated it out, and they made a resolution. They changed the Creed of Nicaea to read, with the Father and the Son, also called the Filioque, which is Latin for and the Son. This issue went to Rome for adjudication, and the Pope said, yes, this is consistent with the faith of the Church, therefore we will allow it. The Patriarch of Constantinople, however, was not pleased. Very upset. You cannot change the wording of a council without the agreement of a council. Therefore, the Roman Church has expressed its autonomy and overextended its power over the other four patriarchs, which led to a lot of animosity. Furthering that animosity, in the 9th century, there was a dispute in Alexandria over a point of theology. This dispute, not settled, went to Rome for adjudication. The letter sent on its core looked fine. There is no particular issues with it. In context, which poor Pope Formosus allegedly did not know, according to historians, he signed off on the letter and thought it to be orthodox. Turns out it was a heresy, and it was condemned later on as a heresy and wrong. But the issue was with the monks of Mount Athos in Greece, who proposed the proper and orthodox understanding of the faith against the Pope of Rome, who then called them out as a heretic. When that was realized, Pope Formosus had already died. They exhumed his body, dressed him in papal regalia, put him on the seat of Peter, tried him as a heretic, and threw his body in the river. Ever since that point, the monks of Mathasos have claimed that the Roman Church is in heresy and therefore cannot be true. Now we get to the cataclysmic event. The year is 1050. The issue? Not much of anything, actually. Pope Leo IX sends a delegation to Patriarch Michael of Constantinople. They're trying to decide a dispute. 
While there, tensions rise and it becomes worse, to the point where the delegates from Rome decide to excommunicate Patriarch Michael. In response, the Patriarch Michael excommunicates the Pope of Rome. Thus begins the division between the Greek churches and the Latin churches that has not been resolved, but is currently in this discussion to see if we can bring them back together. This particular level of hurts has never helped. There's one last one that I want to mention because it is historically very important and shows a lot of the historical pain that has been caused between these two branches of Christianity. In the 12th, 13th century, Pope Urban III was asked by the Patriarch of Constantinople to get an army together to fight a war against the Muslims who are about to invade the, the city of Constantinople, also known as Crusade. Pope Urban agrees to this, and he goes and he talks to all the nobles of the empire and works to bring this army, and he gets this big army, and they excitedly sail off to Constantinople, and when they get there, the Patriarch says, Sorry, we got nothing for you. We have no food, we have no money, you figure it out. Kind of unwise when you have a bunch of trained soldiers with weapons outside your walls, which is exactly what happens. They decide to sack the city of Constantinople, and they take away many of the important holy relics. These relics were returned in the 1980s. That gives you a sense. But this particular moment has marked a very strong hurt between these two churches. The next few centuries are marked by the division just being solidified, but not changed by any means. The important stepping point for us now is to move forward into the 14th and 15th century. A lot of people see the 14th, 15th century as the age of the Protestant Reformation, as though Martin Luther, when he rose to power, was the starting point of a lot of things. That is far from the truth. A lot of the issues that spawned the Protestant Reformation had been going on for two centuries already. People were already upset with the level of power that the Pope expressed. There was divisiveness between the kings and princes of Europe, and there was a reality that people's faith were not being formed. Already back in the 13th century, we have two incredible reformers, St. Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic. These two men were challenged by God to help these people, to teach, to instruct, to guide people back to the faith, to preach well, so that the Christian message may be proclaimed once again. So as we see, even back all the way to the 11th century, some of the issues leading up to the Protestant Reformation were already latent in the, the world at large. And therefore, it's almost like we needed one little catalyst to set off something new. Who is that man? His name is Martin Luther. He's from Germany and was ordained a priest and lived that way for several years. As a priest, there was nothing markedly special about him. He was just like everyone else. He also saw many of the problems of the time, namely issues with indulgences, issues with power, issues with Bible translation, as well as how well people could read and understand the faith. Frankly, I agree with him on some of those points, but we're not there yet. So he writes a letter, and he writes it and sends it to his bishop. The letter is titled, Disputation of Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. His bishop dismissed the letter. Martin Luther was not pleased with this, so in reaction he went and tacked his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church, which then sparked interest by lots of people. Since he's not the only one feeling these things, lots of people are experiencing the same issues and want these things resolved. This sparks a brand new movement. A movement that would then 
alter the course of things for quite a while and start a new movement in which people could choose what they believe. People could have a form of power, which was unheard of in one sense up to this point. In another sense, it was already fairly common. Martin Luther did not intend to start a movement. That's what most people claim. He intended to make changes and to bring the church back to somewhere more proper. The reality is that is not what happened. His mo moment of triumph, his moment of putting those 95 theses on the door of All Saints Church, sparked a whole movement of people that wanted to see these changes happen and were advocating for this change. Catholic Church did not react well to this. They thought it would all kind of wean itself out, but it didn't. Two more reformers caught on. That's um, John Zwingli, that is John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli, who in the northern parts of Europe started the same kind of movement in a different way. They focused not so much on the issue of whether someone could read the Bible or faith alone mentality, but that it's a personal relationship now. It's just between God and I. That's it. And these reformers really did focus on that. Faith alone, scripture alone, justification by faith, the idea that it's just God and I. And that's an important point to make. The Catholic Church, now being called that, focused a lot more on faith and works, on that there's a communal element, that we are a people, but I also have a relationship with God, the two together as one. As this movement begun, there's two movements that are now forming. The first one is the Protestant movement, protesting against the ideas of the Catholic Church and forming their own ideas, their own translations of Scripture, their own churches, their own theology. In the Catholic world, a Catholic Reformation began to address a lot of these points that culminated in the Council of Trent, which did in many ways address the points of the Reformers. It solidified the books of the Bible. It solidified the seven sacraments. The justification by faith and works, highly nuanced, but that's okay. And then also the importance of the Pope, what indulgences are, and a lot of the issues the Reformers brought up. The Reformers movement did not end, and we still see the effects of it today in the various different Protestant and Lutheran churches throughout the world. There's another movement that's starting very similar at a very similar time period as the Protestant Reformation. And that's the one that happened in England. King Henry VIII, dissatisfied with Rome, actually that's a very much so an understatement, he's angry with Rome for not annulling his marriage, decided to form his own church where he could be the sole authority. This is known as the Anglican Church, or the Church of England. He made himself, the king, the sole arbitrator of the faith, and the, um, the person who decides all the laws. He kicked out all the Catholics out of England and formed his own church. And therefore, he had his own way of doing things. He also formed the King James Version of the Bible out of a desire to translate the scriptures into English, which was a common theme in the Protestant movement. Now we have several churches forming. This really is kind of where things end for this particular period of time. As we move into the 17th and 18th century, many things happen philosophically and socially that are critical for understanding our modern world. The two most notable ones are the advent of modernity, which led to the scientific movement. That focused on absolute proof, such as, I can see it, I can taste it, I can touch it. Also, it focused on philosophy and education, that I should be able to prove these things, I should be able to know them with some level of certainty. If not, I cannot adhere to it. 
this mentality led to a focus on religion as kind of mystical or faith only, and therefore not part of this movement. If I can't prove it for, through philosophy, we shouldn't be talking about it. Notable figures like De, uh, René Descartes tried to prove things from reason alone, and we also have Immanuel Kant, who didn't discuss religion on any level because he said, I cannot talk about it philosophically, therefore I'm not going to talk about it at all. The second important point to note is a, a idea that's very similar to what happened in the French Revolution, where the people were upset with ruling powers, they were upset with this kind of oppressive mentality, and therefore people are trying to form their own way of doing things, their own theology, their own philosophy, their own laws and systems. This is not new to humanity, but it is such a marked change from where we've been that it's worth noting, especially as it changes the Christian world into the 20th century. So with these two mentalities running uh, throughout the, the society and uh, throughout the world, we have the advent of the modern era. This involves industrialization. This involves globalization. This is where we have a lot of missionary movements. This is also where we have the two main um, ideas I mentioned a moment ago, such as scientific inquiry, faith as taking a totally different direction, and a change in power and ideas so that individuals have more power. The individual has a control. Now we have a whole bunch of new movements forming. Some of the ones we may be familiar with or may less be less familiar with include the Amish and the Hutterites. These two movements, founded on the idea of escape from the world and forming their own Christian groups, left the world completely to form these communities. These communities are Christian in origin and focus on renunciation completely of the world, which is kind of what they assumed Jesus wanted us to do. These are most notable in the United States with the Puritanical movement as well, but they're not all that well represented today. Some of the ones that are most notable for today would be like the Baptist and the Evangelical churches. The Baptists are much similar to the Amish and the Hutterites in that they became their own church. Each church chooses its theology, with the focus being baptism. Baptism is the way of entry into the life of Christ. Baptism is the core sacrament. And then preaching. Baptism and preaching are the two central parts of Baptist and the point of faith alone. I speak to God, it's about God and I, and that personal relationship. A very similar movement to that, starting in the 20th century, would be evangelical Christianity. Evangelical Christianity is very varied and complicated, but its core message is belief in Jesus. Every church chooses its own theology, chooses its way of being, chooses its pastors, and therefore is dependent on the choices that community makes, namely that Faith in Jesus and the development of that faith is central. I could easily picture these two, things, two movements in very negative ways, and I don't want to do that. I want to look at the more positive spin. These churches that spawned from the 15th through the 20th century that I've mentioned already focus on one important key element, and that is understanding the scriptures. What does the Bible say? How do we live what Acts proposed as we are one of mind and heart? How do we understand the idea that faith comes through Jesus and that faith is critical for understanding whether we are saved and that we are to go out and spread this message and make disciples, convincing all people to become Christian? 
That is really the core of a lot of these early, these later Christian movements spanning the 15th through 20th century. So now the big thing. How do we make sense of all these changes and developments that happened in Christianity over the course of history? Well, that's hard. The main thing, and I mentioned this a moment ago, to recognize in all of this is that every church is trying to do one thing, and that is following the message of Jesus. The challenge with that is that whenever we try and follow a person, we are trying to interpret their actions and ideas, and it's hard to do that. Trying to do that with someone like Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lincoln. People have tried to see the virtues these people express and live them out, but we really don't know the person that well. They're shrouded and very much so in history, and therefore makes it very complicated for us to understand how we are to follow that person. This is no different with Jesus. And it's even further complicated when our main sources are the four Gospels, who don't really intend for us to follow like Jesus' exact way of life. They intend to tell us one thing that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he has saved us. So then all the rest of it, we have to kind of wade through and play around with and try and understand what did Jesus intend? What did he want his church, his church to look like? What were the rules and um, obligations he imposed on his followers? And what does that mean for today? There's a lot of things that are not in Scripture. But yet we do have some things that are very clear. Thou shalt, thou shalt not mentality. Thou shalt not steal has not gone away, neither has... Thou shalt honor the Lord your God. So ultimately, all these churches are trying to figure out how to live Christianity and live it well and live it authentically. And everyone has their own way of doing it. So as we play with the ideas of John Calvin or Martin Luther or even the historical issues of the first millennium, we have to remember a lot of these are theological. What is correct? How do we discuss it? How do we debate it? So that once we get to the point of, I have to make a decision, we are understanding why these changes developed, what they meant, how they are defended, and I have an idea of what might be true. What did Jesus actually intend? What did he want from his church? How are we supposed to live that out? And what is the church supposed to look like? Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 